Alrighty, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So uh, we finished last week the nursemaids and wet nurses of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And someone asked, okay, what's the actual value of this? It's very important because number one, it shows that the Sahaba and it shows the way that the Sahaba and the companions and the Muslims in general uh, what, how they interacted with the Prophet. The Prophet said to them, every step that he took and every breath and every word that he uttered was worthy of documentation because this is the Messenger of Allah Azza wa Jal. Creator of the universe sent a messenger. But that's how important it is. Uh, and, and the Quran calls him Nur. This is the light from Allah Azza wa Jal. Uh, all the light that you have, okay, what is the, the light of the Prophet, peace be upon him, is like the light of the moon. It's coming from another source, but it's the biggest light. Okay, it's the biggest light. So, uh, Allah in the Quran says, We have sent to you a nur and a kitab mubin, a light and a clear book. Therefore, the light is not the Quran. Who is the light then? The Prophet. And he is why he's called the Badr, because the full moon, because it lights up the darkness, but that light is coming from another source. So, that's the analogy. Now, uh, so it shows the documentation that they, they documented everything. They took care to know everything about their prophet, peace be upon him. Because you cannot love someone without knowing about them. So you have to know everything about them. Second thing is now we're on this chapter on the upbringing of the prophet, peace be upon him. And this subject, again, people say, okay, what's really the big deal? First of all, if you keep saying that, if you say that one more time, someone says, what's the big deal about the prophet, peace be upon him? You, uh, you need to be taught a lesson, right? So... The upbringing of the Prophet is actually part of Dala'il al-Nubu'ah. Dala'il al-Nubu'ah means the proof of prophecy. Because we all in life, we see people how they're raised. Okay, The effect of a good mom and a good dad. The effect of a divorce. The effect of no mom. The effect of no dad. And we all know it as common knowledge. right? You all know if a guy grew up with no mom, he's going to be rough, merciless. If a guy grew up with no dad, he's melting all over the place and he's a, a pathetic state. Right? A guy who grew up, no school, ignorant, right? Now, the, why the upbringing of the Prophet is so is a proof of his prophecy because he has so many negative calamities coming upon him and yet the product is completely contrary to everything else that you've seen, right? Now, we've all seen, let's start with the core. The first thing, no dad, right? And the human being who has no dad is an orphan, in the animal kingdom, the orphan of an animals also have orphans, right? The, the, the animal with no mom is an orphan, right? The animal with no dad is not a problem. Usually the dad, he uh, leaves anyway. So it's the mom. So even in Sharia, which is interesting because we prioritize animals in Sharia. The sacred law of Islam prioritizes animals. So if you're going to take, anim take care of animals, take care first of the animal that has no mom. Because that's the orphan of the animals. Okay? So... The orphan of the human is the one who has no dad, okay, no one to take care of him. So let's take a look at what we know as common folk of a man who grows up without a dad, okay, grows up without a dad. Usually, what does he have an issue with? Limits and boundaries. Right? We know this. Or if the dad is soft, too weak. There are some dads, they just sit there, right? The mom is running, going crazy, trying to discipline the kid, and that dad is just sitting there, Right? So some people actually call this person the orphan whose dad is alive. 
That's what they actually call such people. Because he's he has a dad, but he doesn't have a murabbi. No one's raising him. So the problem with people who have no dad or the weak, uh, in absentia dad or the, the weak dad, uh, he's there, but he's, he's as if he's absent. Or you have the in absentia father who's constantly absent, okay, for, for his job or what have you, okay. Uh, we have the same result. Very difficult time observing limits, okay. Now, let us go to the Prophet ﷺ in his history is there any one incident from recorded from his enemies even in which I don't know why this table is creaking so much today. All right. in, in any incident in which the Prophet ﷺ was criticized for not observing laws, not observing limits. And they had limits. Right? Of course they had tribal laws. You had certain things that you don't do, right? Certain things you don't do. But there's no such record of the Prophet being a rebel. Okay, and, and they say, oh, well, he flipped the whole Arabia upside down. Yeah, when? After the age of 40. Now, it's also known in common knowledge, if someone has a, a, a propensity to do something, or a habit, or a natural gift, or a flaw, it appears in, from his teens to his 30s, it's going to appear. You're not just going to suddenly become gifted at the age of 40. It would have appeared way back. Natural gift. Okay, so... For example, the revelation, which is also part of his aspect that he wasn't educated. Well, we should say it differently. We have to say that differently. We have to say he was not given a formal education by anyone. Right? He was not given a formal education by anyone. So what does that tell us? Then why, and he was not a, a poet. So you, could, you, could see, you can hypothetically say a person, is, he never went to school, but he sat with intellectuals his whole life. It's the same thing. It could even be more effective than school, right? The Prophet ﷺ was not known to sit with the poets. He was, he was not sit with to, he was known to sit with the poets. He was not known to have a tutor. He never had a tutor. He was not known. He was living the Bedouin nomad life like everyone else in Mecca. He grow up. What do you do? You herd the sheep like everyone else. You herd the sheep, and then if you advance in life, if you're a Meccan, you involve yourself in trade. There's no record. Now, we just showed you. They had record of who nursed the Prophet, who, when they died, when he was shifted from one family to the next. No record of him ever having a tutor. Okay? He never had a tutor. So where did he learn? How could he learn all of a sudden and bring us the Quran? There's one thing everyone will agree upon, is that the text of, even the Kafirs, the Orientalists, they have to agree. The text of the Quran, the words of the Quran, originated with that man, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, whether they say he went and compiled it, whether they say he went and he stole it, he nabbed it from the nomads, whether they say he just picked up old Arab tales, all of that is an accomplishment, right? All that's an accomplishment of, of a, at, a, at a worldly level even, right? Well, how did he do this? Where is the precedent from him doing this? How did he learn this? Even that has no explanation, okay? So... So this is the first thing. The Prophet ﷺ, his father passed away while his mother was still pregnant with him. Okay, now, he went to then, his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, took custody. When he reached the age of six, his mother took him to Medina Munawwara, all right, uh, together with Umm Ayman Baraka al-Habashiyya, who would look after him, visiting his maternal uncles from Bani Najjar. 
she stayed with them for a month and then set off to return him. But she became ill on the route from Medina back to Mecca and she passed away in Abwa. We said before that the link between the Prophet and Yathrib was forged way before even the revelation came. In his childhood, that link was there. And he had families from the Beni Najjar. Okay? Uh, so, now his mother passes away. So let us look at a man who's raised without a mom. Anyone, again, common sense if you just deal with human beings. When you see a man, he has no emotion. Okay? Or you could just tell there's something different about this person. He's too stiff. He's too stern. He doesn't have any softness to him, no malleability to him. This is the attribute of men who grow up without moms. Okay? A, a man whose mother died early, they tend to be almost colorblind when it comes to emotions. Right? Their wives complain. Right? Their wives complain. And then he has a, a natural out, like an excuse. How am I supposed to know? I don't know how to deal with women. A man one time, subhanAllah, came to me with the biggest uh, ajib problem. Okay, his wife's complaining up and down. So he says, let me just ask the man. Okay, his wife's complaining. The guy never gives me time. Okay, so, okay, so, man, what's the situation? He says, I pay all the bills. I don't know why she's whining, right? I asked him. I realized something. Something's wrong here. I was like, can you tell me how you grew up? He's like, all right, well, first thing that happened was my mom and dad divorced and my mom left. I never saw her again, right? Of course. Of course, you have no clue of the man and women relationship, right? No clue. So when he's married, it's a disaster. He should have taken a course. This type of individual needs to take lessons before he gets married. I mean, you can't be a doctor before going to school. You can't take a driver's license without taking six hours behind the wheel and taking an exam. Why is it that we allow, we actually shouldn't do marriages anymore, right? Without having a class, we got to do a class, right? And not only that, we should have a class of how even to pick the right person, right? How to pick the right person. There was, I remember, uh, a family member of mine went off, got married, okay? He got married. Thing turned sour within, like, weeks. So I asked a simple question from the sunnah, right? Did you do a background check on this individual? Yeah, I did a background check. How? I asked him about everything about himself. So naive. Did you have a man do a background check on this guy? What do you mean you asked him? Of course, what is he going to tell you? I'm bad. I'm this, I'm that. Did you have a man do a background check? Like, let me get your credit score. Let me look you up. Let me see your friends. Who are your friends? I need to have a, arrange a dinner with me and your friends. And if he doesn't have any friends, that's the first signal right there. Right? So all of these fu basic fundamentals that we're taught in the sunnah were not observed. Right? And now you want to have me get involved, and you want me to have sympathy, right? You want to observe, okay? So uh, these things, that, these things are what happen. So Prophet ﷺ, his mother passes away when he is six years old, and yet the attributes of this type of guy who is, uh, the guys who don't have moms, don't appear in the Prophet ﷺ. Okay, don't appear in the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, there is no complaint from a, one of the wives of the Prophet about the Prophet. That's the thing. All right? Because who's going to complain? A guy doesn't care if you had a mom or not. We're doing our guy thing. Who's going to complain? His daughters and his wife. Those are the women who are going to complain. Okay? We don't find any complaints from his, his daughters. We don't find any complaints from the wives of the Prophet. Right? So 
How did he learn this Rahmah? The Prophet was asked this question by Abu Bakr because Abu Bakr al-Siddiq is his best friend from childhood. And this is why Abu Bakr is very important. He's the best friend way before the message. Many people don't know this. He's two years younger than the Prophet and they became best friends way before the message was revealed. So Abu Bakr al-Siddiq said, O Messenger of Allah, I have seen the kings of Persia and their elites and the kings of the Byzantines, the Rum. The, the Byzantine means the Eastern Roman Empire because Constantinople was founded by the Romans when it got too big. When Rome got too big, they opened up New Rome. Okay, and Constantine came over. He was the Roman Empire, Roman Emperor. Because many youth wonder, like, what is Byzantine? What is Roman Empire? How is it the Romans when they're not in Italy? Okay, it means that when the Roman Empire got too big and too many Germans came in, okay, uh, and and started ruining things, they left and they went to what's now Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, and they and Constantine opened up New Rome, and he named it after himself, Constantinople. Okay, the city of Constantine. So. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, he said, uh, I've been to the kings of Rome and the kings of the Persians, and I've seen the elites and their manners, and I haven't seen them match your manners. So how is it that you learned all this? The Prophet answered him, and this is his proof of prophecy, he said, my Lord educated me, and he perfected my education. All right? He educated me and he perfected my education. Okay, so again, no mother, no father. Now what? Okay, now he goes. So uh, his caretaker, Umm Ayman, returned him to his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. Okay, it has also been narrated that his mother was carried after that to Mecca and buried therein, and that is related in Ibn Jozi. Yes, his mother is buried in Mecca. Okay, you can visit the mother of the Prophet Sallallahu her grave there in Mecca. As we said before, we don't say the mother and the father of the Prophet ﷺ, their kuffar. We have to say that there were uh, not idol worshippers, okay, and uh, that they're not from the category of pagans. Uh, we talked about that in the first week. Then his grandfather passed away when he was eight years old. So now the father passes away. Now the gr- mother at six. Now the grandfather at eight. Now he goes to the t- custody of Abu Talib. Now show me someone who goes from one house to the next. Everyone keeps dying and I'm passed around. Show me the people in uh, the cities, okay, in the cities when he's passed from the one government home to the next to the next, even if it's family, okay. One of their matter issues that they have, a lack of stability, right. They, they reflect a lack of stability, okay. In fact, with the Prophet ﷺ, we have the exact opposite. We have the exact opposite with the Prophet. We have consistency. We have a theme of consistency. So even though his childhood is everything's broken up, but yet he understands and he preaches and he lives by a concept of consistency. Okay? And holding a great value to marriage and a great aversion to divorce and breaking up homes. Even though he came from one situation to the next to the next. Now Abu Talib is his uncle. And the wife of Abu Talib, her name is Fatima, daughter of Asad. Okay, this is the wife of Abu Talib, the mother of Ali. Okay, uh, her name is Fatima, the daughter of Asad, and she enters Islam. She is a believer right away with the Prophet ﷺ. And Abu Talib, as is recorded in our histories, that uh, Abbas said, I heard Abu Talib utter kalimat al-shahada. 
But the Prophet said, I did not hear it. Okay, I did not hear it. So that's the record that we have on Abu Talib. Abu Talib became the protector of the Prophet. He is the full brother of Abdullah. Okay. And he was the protector of the Prophet. Now, at this time, Abu Talib he became poor. And as we said as well, Allah always sent the prophets to be uh, from the elite cla- class, elite, most elite class, and the biggest city, but from the poorest clan from that tribe. So you have tribes and clans, just like you have the trunk of a tree and then the branches. So you have the tribe, the most elite tribe, but the weakest branch. Okay, And at the time, the Abu Talib became poor. Okay, So the Prophet got to experience poverty. Now, when the Prophet ﷺ reached the age of 12, he traveled to Sham with his uncle Abu Talib. And the Prophet, this, some people say, well, why, why, what was the wisdom of this? The Prophet understood now the trade routes of the Arabs. The trade routes of the Arabs, okay? Uh, which was very important. However, his uncle returned him out of fear of the Yahud because the monk of the Bahira frightened him of them. So there's a lake, a little lake up there around the Sham area. Sham is being the, the, the name Sham is the Levant, which means Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and Lebanon. That whole area is called a Sham. It's called a Sham because the son of Nuh, alayhi salam, according to the Prophet, salam, settled in Sham. And then another son named Ham settled somewhere else. And another son named Yafith settled somewhere north. Okay, And these are the three sons of Nuh. Sam or Sham, son of Nuh. So, the monk that lives by that lake, some people think his name is Bahira. Chances are he's more, Bahira is, he's the monk of the Buhaira, which is the small lake or the small sea. And he told Abu Talib, return him because the prophecy says that the Yahud will be after him. Okay? That the, the Bani Israel is going to be after him. So he returned them. Okay? Now, when he later on went to Sham again, this time he went with the servant of Khadija, this time after he had married, uh, and he went with uh, Maysara, which means ease, the cause of ease. Maysara means a cause of ease. Uh, he was 25 years old, and this was on the 16th of the Hijjah. Look at, they even kept, uh, uh, you know, they even kept dates. He وسلم, stopped to rest under the tree, shade of the tree when Nestor, the monk, said, no one has stopped to rest under this tree except a prophet. That tree is actually still in existence now. Uh, and it's a ajeeb, amazing tree that you see a completely cracked desert that the dirt is cracked. Okay, But that area floods once a year and the water goes under the ground, keeping that tree alive. So that tree turns green once a year and that tree is still, still there. And it's part of the kingdom of Jordan, right? It's part of the kingdom of Jordan, okay? So that's the tree of the Prophet ﷺ. And that's the, actually, it's considered the only living organism that still exists from the time of the Prophet right? Yeah, so they made a movie about it. Yeah, made a movie about it. Okay, they made a little movie about the blessed tree, okay? So this is, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, a nice thing that they, that they kept, the Prophet ﷺ, as a, a man rested under that tree, and Nestor said, no man rests under that tree except a prophet, according to Christian prophecies. Right? 
There's a lot of prophecy at the time of the prophet was like today. Today, there's a lot of talk like the end is coming. Stuff is going to happen. We don't know whether it's going to be from climate, nuclear. We don't know what it is. All right, something's going to happen. It's, the talk is it's in the air. It's in the movies. The, the most popular genre of the past decade has been destruction movies, right? Apocalyptic movies. And now we're moved beyond that. We're like post-apocalyptic. It means like what is life like after everything has been wiped clean, right? And you've got a lot of movies like this, okay? So just like that, that time, just like now, in that time, there was a lot of talk that there's something's going to happen, right? Something's going to go on because things got really bad at that time. Whenever you have a couple things, when they go bad, this is the sign that society, civilization, human civilization needs a reset button. There are two things, and really they're, they're linked. Really they're linked. Uh, uh, number one, and you can add a third one, number one is dress. The dress, a human being intrinsic, his... His self-honor and respect is really based on his coverage of himself when he starts becoming naked. This is why Allah Azza wa Jalla described. How does he describe ignorance? Uncovering yourself. Right? This is the first thing. Number two, that the concept of a marriage of man and woman is corrupted. So in the Jahiliyyah, they said there were four types of marriage. One of them became was pure, and then the other three crept in, and Sharia came in and, and wiped them away. Right, so when the issue of marriage gets corrupted, well, no, why is that? Well, that's the factory of the human being. Human beings, the factory is man and wife in a house, under a house. You corrupt that, you've ruined everything. So hum what is human civilization? It's what humans do together. So if the human himself is corrupted, right? If he's corrupted, you're going to have a problem with the whole thing. Imagine if you got uh, whatever, the, these chips that they make, okay? And the chip factory, what's the company? Uh, Intel. If Intel gets corrupted, the all computers are going to be corrupted. It's the same thing. Now, the third thing, which they consider actually a result, is when the wealth divide just expands, such that and the elite are in complete control of the poor. All right. This is the sign that the society will is really has reached its its point of no return, and it has to be changed soon. So what are we on right now? We are just starting to see the beginning of the third feature right now. So it's not yet. There's going to be some time. As long as there's like a middle, a middle class, right? Slowly that's shrinking, and you're going to have a top elite with the power to oppress 95% of the people, right? And the top elite are smart enough today to learn that all you have to do is give a guy Wi-Fi and Netflix, he won't complain, right? Give him that stuff, he will just watch TV all day and all night, and he's not going to complain. And the Romans did that in the beginning, uh, and the Arabs had their own version. Just let them listen to poetry all day and all night, and, and no one will complain or do anything. Okay, So this is uh, about the Prophet ﷺ. Now, many people don't know, and we actually have a sunnah for a man who gets turned down when he proposes to marry. At the age of 20 a hallmark situation that happened to the Prophet ﷺ was that his friend growing up, and remember, they, they didn't have like sharia like we do today, right, uh, in that time, uh, but they had purity. They were just pure people. They were people of fitrah. The household of Abu Talib was very pure. Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib, he has a sister. Right? Her name is Fakhita, right? also known as Umhani. 
at the time, the, she was the aide to the Prophet and they were always together as friends, and they came to love one another so much so that everyone knew that they loved one another, and the Prophet Sallallahu uh, uh, yeah, everyone in the locality knew that they're close to one another in a decent and moral way, and he went and he proposed to Abu Talib for the hand of his cousin Fakhita. Okay, now Abu Talib he was on some hard times, right? And he saw the Prophet that Muhammad, this young man, he's a good young man, but he has no wealth, right? He doesn't have a father to inherit from. So he married Fakhita out of fear of poverty to another tribe that was wealthy. Okay? So that if any young man gets that disappointment, well, he has in the Prophet an example that he had. Okay? Now, what did the Prophet do? And what did he say about a man who gets turned down? First of all, he went back to Abu Talib and he said, you have already given two daughters to those people. Right? So he didn't take it sitting down. So number one, you, take, you should have the last word. There's a psychological element of having the last word, right? Even if, it, even if you lost the battle, but just have the last word, there's a, there's a psychological element to it. In the battle of Uhud, was it successful? It wasn't successful. It was very bad. But the next morning, the Prophet said, get up, everyone get up, and we're going to chase them out. Is that chase going to have any material effect on the war? They're leaving already. On the battle, no. It has a psychological effect that we chase them down, right? We chase them out of here, okay? So... To have the last word actually has a psychological effect. Number two, the Prophet said, when a man is turned away okay, from a family, he never knocks on that door again. We're not uh, doing some Hollywood movie, oh, come back to me, right? <laughs> and running and getting skinny and lo losing weight over someone, right? And then going back, and then three years later going back. No, we don't do that type of thing. If you're a Muslim man, you ask once. If they said no, khalas. You keep your dignity and you hold your head up high and you find someone else. You cry for three days, then pick yourself up, okay, and move on with life. We don't have this thing, okay? Three days maximum, right? <laughs> Morning period, okay? We don't have this thing where you go and you just uh, wallow around in grief and uh, we have like Layla and the Majnoon very famous poem about Layla and the Majnoon, okay? And he can't even survive without Layla. Okay. No, this is a sunnah of the Prophet. So it's not like that marriage is going to be invalid, right? The sunnah of the Prophet is not like, you're doing a makru because you're putting yourself at the chance that someday, you always build for the worst, right? You don't build for the best. You build for the worst. Okay, what's going to happen someday? Okay, and you're not getting along. You expose yourself. Oh, you you came five times. I should have rejected you. You didn't get the message the first four times, right? You expose yourself to be humiliated, right? You expose yourself. Okay. So at the best, it's oh, it's a romantic story. He kept coming and coming and coming. But yani, this isn't the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You man, you have dignity, right? You get turned away once. You don't keep going back. Okay. And then Prophet Sallallahu was a shepherd. Everyone knows this. From the time he reached the ability to have responsibility until around age 25, he was a shepherd. So in this time, he's a shepherd, and he would get a few dates at the end of every day for herding the, local, the sheep of the local family and whatnot. And why is a shepherd so important? And the Prophet Sallallahu said, every prophet was a shepherd. A shepherd, firstly, the sheep is, he's looking down at the sheep. 
So it gives him the feeling that, and the sheep are helpless. It creates, it simulates a feeling of protector. Right? Control and protection. The sheep, of course, is unlike a goat. The goat is very rowdy and, pro and uh, causes problems. And the Arab food of choice is the sheep. The goat is more comes in mountainous regions, right? So where you have mountains, okay, you have goats. And where you have deserts, you have sheep. That's how it works, okay? And then the Prophet even said, then, then there you have camel, and then you have cow. And the Prophet said, the softest of hearts are the herders of the shepherds. But the ones that will defeat each other in battle are the keepers of cows and camels will always defeat the keepers of sheep and goat. If you're keeping sheep and goat all day, you're relaxed. The goat is a bit of a headache. The sheep is fine. The camel and the cow requires rough, almost not violent, almost violent. You got to yell at it. You got to kick it. You got to hit it to do what it has to do. And it can hurt you. So you got, you got the Prophet said it's makruh to pray, make salah, where camels graze. Because the camel is vindictive, violent. It will hurt someone if he's not looking. It's arrogant. All of these attributes about the camel. Now, we're not talking about specific camels. He's talking about the general nature of the camel, right? Uh, the general nature of the camel. So this is the general nature of the cow. So if you're interacting with these two beasts, which we call budun in sharia, budun, the ruling on them is that in Eid, you can divide up seven people can divide up the slaughter of a cow or a camel, whereas one person slaughters a sheep. This is the uh, adha, Eid al-adha, when we slaughter for sadaqah. Okay, and you take a third, and you give a third away, and you share a third with your friends. So, uh, the, the, the Prophet said, the people of the budun, which means the big animals, will always conquer the people of the sheep. The people of the sheep are very simple people. right? And look at, uh, in American history, the cowboys, you don't see Native Americans herding cows, do you? Right? The Native Americans weren't herding cows. They were natural people. Well, who conquered who? The rough cow, cowboys conquered the Native Americans. Right Now in the Arabia you had the Najd. The camel herders were in the middle of Arabia. On the coast, and at the western coast, and in the bottom, Yemen, you had the sheep herders. Right? You had the sheep herders. So you got the Prophet you, you become you're in control of these animals. You have to protect them because they're helpless. But at the same time, the sheep is so soft, you have to be gentle with it. The sheep can be very upset very easily. So in order to avoid this, you have to be very gentle with the sheep, okay? So the herder of the sheep, okay, and sheep as well, they're not the brightest of animals. So one of the attributes, how do we know the intelligence of animals? You know how they, how they die. So the buffalo is considered the least intelligent, one of the least intelligent. The sheep as well, one of the least intelligent. Why? If the herd moves, right, off a cliff, nobody will stop. They will all go off the cliff, right? So if they have a herd mentality, and any beast that operates with a herd mentality, okay, is not an intelligent animal, right? Not an intelligent animal. Now, in contrast, the goose, they're, the, they're one of the most intelligent animals. The geese, they, when they fly, they actually do studies on them, aerodynamic studies on them, because when their flight patterns are observed, they fly in the V. Firstly, that's brilliant. It cuts the wind. If you fly in, in a row, right, you're all facing the wind. 
But when you fly in a V, you're cutting the wind for the person behind you. Not only that, who, so who has the least wind to face? The furthest one. And who has the most wind? The first one. You, the goose have been studied that they shift in the most efficient way possible. The last one comes up and the first one goes to the back. And then they keep shifting like that until everyone at the end, all the goose, the geese have you know, faced uh, the least possible amount of wind. So some animals are smarter than others. The sheep is not the brightest type of animal because they have a herd mentality. If a dog chases them off the cliff, they'll all go off the cliff. Okay. So you have to, you know, go with their pace. You know. So the shepherd is a very I think every all these Muslim groups and we're doing leadership camps, right? Leadership camps. You're not even a good follower. We gotta we gotta fix this thing with the Muslim youth leadership. He's not even a follower. No one taught him how to be a good follower. How do you be a good leader? By being a good follower first. The Prophet ﷺ taught his Sahaba how to be good followers. How? One of the trick, the, 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 the things that the Prophet ﷺ used to do is that he would never let anyone get ossified in a position. So if he said, let's say, great Sahabi like Abu Bakr Siddiq, out and you're in charge of this group, you're going to go do such and such. So they go and do it. Next time around, it's not going to be Abu Bakr. It'll be someone else. Abu Bakr, you're under the charge of so-and-so. Another thing, he used to go, if Abu Bakr, let's say Sahabi like Abu Bakr was in charge. Halfway through, send a letter. Abu Bakr, you go be a follower, someone else be in charge. What did he do? He caused them not to love leadership. So that you love being a follower. So that in the, you're, you're, you're the leader. You're going out. All right? Uh, Abu Bakr is in charge. Okay? Halfway through, a messenger comes riding on his horse with a letter, opens the letter. Abu Bakr stepped down, put Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas up, right? Halfway through, and sometimes he probably do it two, three, and four times. Until what? What does all the Sahabi do? When I get appointed, it has no meaning because I could lose it at any time. So don't value it. Not to value leadership, right? And then look at how we're doing the tarbiyah of our youth. This is a seven years old leadership camp. You can be a follower first, right? Learn how to be a follower first. Secondly, all you need to do is you don't need to have a, just buy an acre of land, two acres of land out way out in Pennsylvania. Send the youth out to be shepherds for three, four nights, uh, three, four weeks of the summer. And that's it. You don't need to go and philosophize too much because people think, oh, leadership can't meet needs. You need to learn how to use technology. You need to first learn the ethics of things first. The, yeah, the, 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 the core values that never change. Okay, you got the best leader. You all the stuff that they're teaching in the leadership camp. You can learn that stuff in two weeks when you get older. You need to learn the core values of things, right? Patience, patience. Well, life. I had a leadership camp. No one would sign up, right? They wouldn't sign up. But the ones who do, they're gonna come out proper, right? So, Prophet he was a shepherd. Now, a shepherd. There's some other value to it. You're alone. What do you do? You contemplate. You develop depth when you contemplate. You develop depth. Okay? He then did, did the exact polar opposite job. Okay? He got a job with Sayyidah Khadija. Okay? This job is the exact polar opposite job. This is being a merchant. Ibn Khaldun, 
Ibn Khaldun was considered the first sociologist in the history of Islam. Okay? And he studied society and he studied trades. And one of the things that Ibn Khaldun said is that trades that people take on develop their attributes. If you become an educator, you're going to develop certain excellent qualities. If you, if you become whatever trade you are, you develop certain qualities. Okay? He said, of all the trades, the most the trade that develops the most bad qualities is the merchant. Is the merchant. It also develops some good qualities. Okay? A lot of good qualities and a lot of bad qualities. But the bad outweigh the good. He said the second is the lawyer. Develops the worst qualities of being argumentative, being legalistic. This is all bad, right? Uh, and using logic for, for money as well. Like using my knowledge for money. Now what is about the merchant that's problematic? Let's take a look at the bad things, then look at the good things. The merchant, first of all, he tends to become a very anxious, neurotic individual because he only eats what he kills. He's not salaried, right? He's not guaranteed 5000 is going to go in the bank. He only eats if he kills. So he's got to sell, right? He's got to sell. And therefore, he's got to use everything he has to do what? What is selling? Selling is one of these things that never change. You go somewhere, you get something very cheap. You go where nobody else can go. Then you come, you cross the distance, that's your service, to the city where no one has seen this item before, and you sell it very high. That's what it is from the beginning of time to the end. That's what sales is. And all this stuff they're doing in Wall Street that you don't understand... Oh, I don't understand business because I don't know what derivatives are. And I don't know what... All that stuff is a game in the first place. It's all artificial. It's not true sales or trade or business. It's all professional, legalized gambling. Okay? All this stuff that they're doing on well, options and all these things, it's betting. That's all it is. It's betting. It's not real work. If there was a sultan, he'd make all that stuff illegal in 24 hours. Okay? But the real sale is you went somewhere that no one else goes. You found something that no one else has, then you traveled all the way back to the city and you sold it. And then you, 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 you covered it up in all sorts of wonderful designs and packaging and all and, and that. So there's an element of like legalized, permissible, yani, almost trickery, right? It's almost trickery, but it's legal and it's fine and it's all, it's all okay. But that's what it is, okay? So that's what marketing is. You're taking something and covering it up and making it much more beautiful than it is. If you notice, if you this is what something that's that's amazing. If you notice, the Prophet of the Quran, the Quran does not try to market itself. It does not hide anything. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wallahu la min al Allah is not afraid of the truth. Allah is not trying to cover anything up. We don't need to cover anything up, right? It's all out there in the book, open for the public. Right? The verses you like and the verses you don't like. The verses that you want your neighbor to see and the verses you don't want your neighbor to see. It's all there. Until Yom Al-Qiyamah. Why? Because Allah la Allah's not playing a game with us here. We're not trying to do trade. We don't decorate our masajid the way the Vatican is decorated. You're not going to come and see gold hanging around the masajid. Right? The Ottoman Empire, those Ottoman Turkish mosques, they had money they don't know what to do. They're employing people. People don't understand this. This is like Alhambra. Look at the, what Muslims said. Do you know Alhambra is actually a symbol of the decline? 
And people are so naive about history. They don't know anything about history. If you look with the Muslims, the height of Islamic civilization, Alhambra. You don't know anything about history. Alhambra is the sign of the end. Why? First of all, Granada is a non-factor for 800 years in the history of Muslim Spain. When the Inquisition happens and the Muslims are pushed all the way down and they lost every single city, with the exception of one city, Granada was the last city left because it was so far south, the Christians didn't even bother to care. So all the Muslims start living in Granada or Morocco, or they move to Morocco. Now you have this small local village king called Muhammad al-Ahmar. Muhammad al-Ahmar and his family. Now what is he going to do? The influx of people. Now imagine you are, uh, a tidal wave comes, hits the east coast, and now Cleveland, all the New Yorkers, and all these designers, and all these architects, and all these people, computer engineers, and all these Wall Street guys, they all have to move to Cleveland because a tidal wave knocked out the whole East Coast. Okay? So the governor of Cleveland, he's got to, what is he going to do? He's going to commission these guys. He's got to put them to work. Got to put them to work. These guys came with all their money. All these Muslims came with all this gold. So all these New Yorkers coming with all their money. So what's he going to do? He's going to set up a commission. All right. Take an empty piece of land. Build it up. Do something. You've got to do something. So he was, Muhammad al-Ahmar, out of charity, commissioned al-Hamra to be made to keep these artisans busy. To keep them busy. So this is why, you look, the guy spent maybe like a year making a roof, a ceiling. If you look at one of those rooms, right, the, the, they'll tell you, the ceiling here, this took five years to do. Yeah, because you had an overpopulated thing, and you need to keep them busy, right? So that's Al-Hamra. Like an Ottoman Empire. You go to the Masjid, and you're just like, oh my gosh, what is, this is like a cathedral, right? And it's amazing. You feel like I'm in Jannah already, okay? This is, again, so much money was coming in. They need to keep these people busy, right? Keep them busy. Okay, commission a huge masjid. Commission something. There's no poor people in the city anymore, right? So this is, this is what's happened. But we don't try to sell it. What is our masjid? A clean square. That's, that's it. No, there's nothing there. You walk in, people get surprised. What, where is, what is it? This is it, right? Yeah, because it helps you think about God. You go to the Vatican, I don't know how do people think about God. You're just looking. Those painting is from the 16th. This statue is from the 15th century. This is, by, this is more of an art history class, right? Not prayer, okay? So this is the thing. We don't try to... The merchant has to do the opposite. The merchant needs to bring all these tricks out, okay? But this is halal, okay? What else about the merchants? There is no set pr right, a price for anything, right? There's the going rate. Who determines the going rate? You and your skill of haggling and debating. The merchant, he's going to get ripped off unless he haggles to death. Okay? So he's got to haggle everything down. So what does he get used to as a habit that there is no requests and nothing, nothing that comes to him except in his mind it transforms into a deal. Right? It has to become a deal. It's, everything's a deal. That means that like if his 16-year-old son comes and says, I need five bucks to go get myself, you know, a Kit Kat, okay? It's going to be a deal. Okay, five bucks, well, what are you going to do for me? Well, why do you need five bucks? You can get it for four bucks and you go to the others. This has become impossible to deal with, right? Because it becomes ingrained as a habit. This is why actually Masajid is very important. When you come to the Masajid a couple times a week, all right, if not every day, you deal with everyone 
and you have to slough off these habits, right? You slough off these habits, okay? These habits won't grow on you too much because you're dealing with everyone, okay? And you come into that third space that cleans you out. Now, so we said that they, Ibn Khaldun said they become neurotic, neurotic because he doesn't know if he's going to eat tomorrow. He becomes, he's got to use his words to, to make something look like what it's not. Number three, everything becomes a give and take and a haggle. These are the negative attributes, but what are the positive attributes? Allah would not have made the Prophet to be a merchant if the merchants did not have some of the most positive attributes. Number one positive attribute, you learn human nature better than anyone else. Why? Because the person in front of you has a number in his mind. And it's up to you to keep looking at him and looking at him, right? Until you try to figure out what's that number in his mind. I need to look at his body language, right? I need to figure out what is it that's going to get him to buy. And he, as a trader, covers up his body language. You become like an expert poker player, right? So the merchant knows human nature. And the signals people give better than anyone else because he's doing this 24 hours a day. If he doesn't do it, he doesn't eat. If he fails at it, he doesn't eat, right? Whereas a farmer is the polar opposite. He's so naive, right? The joke is always the farmer comes to the city and he's getting fooled left and right. There's no lying in the farm. There's no trickery in the farm, right? So uh, the Prophet ﷺ did this job and this fine-tuned Okay, the skill of knowing human nature, being able to look in people's eyes and know. Because the Prophet, he's about to set upon a way, a way of life as the messenger in which he's going to deal with all sorts of people. So he's got to deal with them. Okay, the worst of people. Okay, so this is the first thing that they know, human nature. Number two, okay, number two, and I think we mentioned this before, but uh, the merchant, the great quality of the merchant becomes he must have reliance. Like let's say in the Islamic context, we're going to say he has to rely upon Allah. He, do, he wakes up, he doesn't know how many sales he's going to make. Whereas the farmer, he can see, yep, everything's coming, it's going to be fine. He can rest and relax, right? The merchant cannot. The merchant doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So what else, number three, what else does this cause him to do? At four o'clock, if he didn't make any sales, what does he got to do? Take a risk, right? Risk taking. What is it that moves society? Right? What moves society are the businessmen who take risks on the intelligent people in the world. Some, uh, many creative people in, in, market, in, in science, in any field, there are creative people. Do you think that without a risk-taking businessman, they would have gotten anywhere? No. Apple would not have gotten anywhere if there was not a risk-taking businessman behind them. Right? There, way back when they were in a garage, there was a guy who gave him like $90,000 or something, right? Because he saw this guy, he's going to do something. So behind all the human advancements, we always give the award goes to like Edison or whoever the inventor is. No, there's always a risk-taking money guy who took a risk on that guy, right? Venture capitalists, okay? From the dawn of time. This is very important. So he becomes a risk-taker. If you do not take a risk in life sometimes you do nothing right you need to move but the risk needs to be intelligent it needs to be such a risk that it's calculated the loss is pre-calculated the fool is say i'm going to be a risk taker and then he takes a dumb risk 
This is like someone says, oh, I need, we should be skydivers, so let me just jump off a cliff. No, you need to calculate it and be educated about it first and take a calculated risk. So, and, and the best is the risk of desperation. If, if I'm a comfortable venture capitalist and I throw some money at some kid and he fails, I don't care, right? But if, if I'm khalas, I have nowhere else to put my money. I'm going to starve. I'm going to put it in you to make the business work then we will fight tooth and nail to make the business work. All of these are the positive elements of, of uh, merchants, of business people. Okay? And the Prophet ﷺ, he ended up doing both opposite extreme jobs to hone in these skills. Now, uh, according to most people, the one job that produces the best qualities in people. Okay? I don't know, did we say this last week or week before? Has anyone have a guess? What is it that produces the best qualities in people? You're not going to guess this, and you're going to, you know, you might be a bit surprised. The one job that produces the best qualities in people and is a horrible job, the real estate agent. Okay? The real estate agent. Why is that? The real estate agent, number one, he's got to rely. He's got to trust. He's got to hope. Right? There is no guarantee. How many homes does he take people to homes, and he doesn't make a sale? He's got to pick himself up, dust himself off. He can get right close, three, four visits, they're getting close, no sale. He's got to pick himself up. So number one, he learns to have patience. Number one, he learns to handle disappointment. Number three, customer service. You are a host the whole time, right? You're a host. And you can't lie about the house. It's right there, right? You can't lie. So there's none of that uh, spicing it up more than what it is, right? You are a host. Have you ever seen a rude a uh, real estate agent, he's not going to have a job. Number four, presentability. Cleanliness. You've never seen a real estate agent in a beat-up car. He's always driving. An, even he's poor, right? He has to have an Acura or something, right? Because it show, he has to show that he's successful, right? <laughs> if he's a rookie, he could have a Honda, right? <laughs> right? So they, they, you end up with so many good attributes, right, to be a real estate agent. The beginning part was for himself. These, the job as a merchant is to study others, to study the world, right? To study people. So how he is going to study people? He, of course, Allah can place inside of him right away the knowledge of people. But how is that knowledge going to come out? Only by interaction, right? It's only by interaction. Just like I say, just like someone says, this library has all the books in it. Well, how am I actually going to use them when I give you an assignment? Right? When I say, I need such and such, right? then you're going to go find that knowledge in the books. So likewise, yes, we believe that Allah placed this knowledge in his heart, but at the same time, how is that going to be stimulated and manifest? Only through interaction. Right? And so that interaction, uh, this is the function of it. This is the benefit. Also, there's another thing. Recently, it's so funny, I don't want to disrespect the current Pope because he's a, yeah, uh, politically he's doing... He's not making things worse for the Muslims, let's put it that way, right? If anything, he's a bit sympathetic, which is fine, right? Um, but I have to say, it's pretty funny that he's running a seminar on the family, right? He's running a seminar or some kind of project where he's, he's teaching or whatever about family. Well, you never married. You never had kids. What are you saying about family, right? 
So as a follower, you don't want someone to tell you what to do, but who's never done it before, right? How could you, as a, as a man who's rough and tumble like Omar bin Khattab, and the prophet that you follow has never interacted with people, right? He's never gone into the, uh, to the streets and dealt with people. No, right? You got to deal with people. And every one of our kids, he's got to have an internship in New York at some point. You got to go and get in the subway, wake up at 5 a.m., go in, deal with people, right? Knock around, bang around, sweat it out in the subway system. This is our, like, uh, almost our sunnah in New Jersey, right? A passage, right? You got to work in New York a little bit, bang it around, okay? Deal with traffic, deal with the metro station or metro park, right? Now they're going to open one in North Brunswick. You got to deal with that headache. You got to deal with, you know, your shirts being. Uh, soiled by 4 o'clock just because of the heat of the subway, right? Deal, deal with all that headache, right? That's part of our life. If someone doesn't do that in our culture, it's like, what do you know about life? And most of these academics work. The bid'ah is all coming from these academics, right? The bid'ah, the innovations, the reform of Islam is all coming from these academics. Now, I want to bring one of these academics here. What's your life experience? He's just a fuzzy kid. Went in there, got so happy that he got into Harvard or Princeton or something, and now he's telling us what to do, right? You even even earned a buck in your whole life, right? These people, and if we sent you to the real world, you'd be eaten alive within half an hour. You come crying, right? I see one of these guys go and, and sign up for like Teach for America and quit after two weeks. He couldn't take it, right? I don't want to hear another word from you after this, right? You don't know anything, right? If you don't know how to deal with humans, okay. So these are from the states of the Prophet before receiving revelation. Let's take a look at the one uh, last thing. Let's take a look at how the Prophet uh, what they said about how he did his job okay, before being commissioned as a messenger. He was religious, devout, and devout in worship, worshiping in the old ways of Ibrahim that was existed at the time. And we don't know about that. And there's a hikmah. We don't know what was he saying. How was he praying? We don't know. So that some no, none of the people mistakenly start praying like that. So actually, it's like wiped out. We have no clue how the Abrahamic. What we know, it was prayer, it was sadaqah, and it was fasting. The same as uh, every other. We just don't know how they were doing it. He would occupy himself with herding the sheep, and would later say, "Allah did not send a prophet except that he herded sheep." At some point in his life, someone asked, "And what about you?" He said, "Yes." This is narrated in Bukhari. He would also trade, and a Sa'ib ibn Abi Sa'ib had a trade partnership with him. And it was him, to him that he said on the day of conquest, Welcome my brother and my partner. Okay, because they were partners in trade. He would neither flatter nor argue in business. Okay? There are so many makruh and haram that happens in business. Okay? That we, as a, we don't have this haggling culture. The prices is on the ticket and that's it. Okay? Uh, today, in fact, it's the opposite. You're lucky if you see a human being when you go shopping. Right? But back in the countries... Uh, where they have this, they have haggling, and they have lying, and they have flattery, and all sorts of horrible things, like, by Allah, don't pay anything, right? And of course, if you, if you do that, or like, the worst thing, a guy comes to do a job for you, right? Uh, and then he refuses, this is a big makruh, let's say you, you get a guy to come do the plumbing for you. Okay, he comes to the plumbing. Agree on the price beforehand so you don't have a fight, Okay. And this is, I'll tell you, this is what the Egyptian will do. He'll come, he'll say, oh, let, me, let me just do it for you. Let me just do it for you. Okay, he does it for you. This is what he's going to do. Then he's going to come on the way out. 
right? And you say, okay, how much is it? First, he's going to come late. Then he's going to, this is what he's going to do. This is what he's going to do. Then you're going to pull out your checkbook. Okay, how much is it? He said, well, he don't pay anything. Oh, really? Four hours on a Sunday? Well, he don't pay anything? You spent four hours here on a Sunday? Well, he don't pay anything. Okay. Uh, or just give me a number. Okay, whatever you pay. Whatever you want to pay. Whatever you think is fair. That's a lose-lose either way. You've lost either your money or you're going to start a fight or you offend him. So you, you don't know. You go consult with your wife. Your wife doesn't know. You're consulting. You're like, my gosh, this is taking too much time. You finally write a check. He looks at the check. And then next day, you call him for another job. He doesn't pick up the phone. Right? And you wonder what happened. Right? Do other people do this besides the Egyptians? Because I don't know. I'm, I just That's all my experiences. Okay? No, I'm telling you, everyone does this. Not just the Egyptians. Everyone's doing this, right? All these, that's just who my experience is. They're all doing it, okay? Yeah. And it ruins everything. Okay. Another question, another reason the Prophet did this so that he could legislate things. This is why the Prophet said, okay, and when you have an agreement, write it down. When you do an action, agree on the, pro the cost first. All these sunnas to help avoid these. We have so many of these problems developed between people because we don't fulfill these sunnas, right? Uh, right? Let's write this down. Oh, we don't trust each other. Okay, if we trust each other, let's write it down, right? So we have these sunnas we should avoid, okay? So uh, we'll stop here. And if there, oh, they don't pray. So, okay, so let's take, uh, we'll stop here with the book portion and we can open it up to Q&A and, uh, and whatnot. That's all it is, yeah. It's uh, The whole message is relied upon one. The whole of the religion is based upon the, the history of the Prophet of being the, uh, an honest, upright uh, man. That he excels in intelligence. He excels, number one, in honesty and trustworthiness, in morals, in modesty. He has proven that he's not after anything, right? He has proven this. Anyone who's after anything... If someone's out for attention, he's not going to develop suddenly at 40 he wants attention. He would have done something way earlier to get attention. Okay, Like we said, these kids who have no family in Hollywood is filled with kids who have no mom, no dad. What are they, why are they there to get attention? Who else is going to prance on a stage okay, and, and play make-believe for the people to laugh at him and be happy? Except someone who's never gotten attention from his mom and dad. If someone gets attention from his mom and dad, he's good. 
the Prophet Sallallahu the 40 years proved that's why Allah says in the Quran I have spent with you a lifetime before this. You never see me trying to get attention, trying to get power, trying to get anything. Why suddenly now you're accusing me of this, right? So. Yeah, like things bad when when your money ends up being wasted. Yeah, so it's not sinful. Here's the thing. You can earn something. Your earning of it is halal, but you don't know what's behind the money, right? So if a guy who owns a shop and a drug dealer comes to buy from him a uh, uh, food or whatever, he, it's a halal transaction, right? But you, that money may not be halal. It's got to get out somehow. It's got to be removed. Like you eat halal food, you still go to the bathroom, right? Because there's bad things in the food the body doesn't want, right? It's the same thing. So you intake, huh? You pay sadaqah, you pay zakah to remove. You better off remove it yourself than have it being removed for you. Um, yes, there is a collection about female companions, right? And not just their biographies, but what they've said. That's what you're talking about, right? From their perspective. Uh, the exact title of the book, I'll, I'll have to get that. Uh, the, I have it on my shelf, right? And um, I'll, have to, I'll look into it. I'll read the book a little bit and have a better idea for next week. Right? It's, <clears throat> Anything, anyone else? All right. This book should be available uh, in from Mecca Books, which you should get it from Mecca Books because the shipping will be cheaper and faster. Um, MeccaBooks.com, uh, I think. And you can find this book for like $8 or something, $12 or something. Yeah. All right. khairan. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. Wal asr inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa alladhina amanu wa amanu al-salihat wa tawasu bil-haq wa tawasu bil-sabr. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi. Yeah, so this is like a seven-week spring ISCJ halakha. It's like a tradition, right? A little spring halakha that we do here. So there's uh, four more weeks. Four more weeks. Four more weeks.